John chapter 4, kind of a famous chapter in a sense because it's the woman at the well. And in the bulletin, I've got 10 points that I want to make. And let me turn this off just a second. Excuse me. It's just nervousness that tightens up my throat. That's what I've figured out uh, in old age. So this morning we're studying John chapter 4, and we're going to see in verse 1 that Jesus and his disciples have been busy, much more than just meeting at night with Nicodemus. And John the Baptist indeed has done his job well. Jesus and his ministry is increasing throughout Jerusalem and Judea. But Jesus decides to move on. So we look in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Jesus is leaving this southern region of Judea, and the crowds have responded to his ministry. The disciples have been baptizing left and right, but the Pharisees are taking notice, and things are quickly becoming political. That sound familiar? In order to avoid a direct clash, Jesus has decided to leave Judea And he's journeying northward to Galilee. We see in verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, it takes at least a day longer or more uh, to take the preferred path from Jerusalem to Galilee. And that's further east from Samaria. It's down to the Jordan Valley, and, and it doesn't go through this rocky, hilly section of Samaria, but a pilgrim traveled through Samaria only if there was a pressing need to do so. Was Jesus late? Did he have another wedding he had to go to? Is that why he needed to take this shortcut north to the region of Galilee? And as the story unfolds, even the woman will recognize the unusual situation she's forced into by this stranger, this Jewish man who's breaking all the cultural rules between the Samaritans and the Jews. Jews and Samaritans didn't mix during these days. There was great animosity and prejudice between them. It wasn't just for the religious reasons that this woman is going to bring up later. It went deeper than that. It had racial overtones. These people weren't Jews, not in the strictest sense. During those times, the Jews looked down on the Gentile world. And you can see this on my list of things to be thinking about. The the word Gentile and sinner were synonymous terms to the Jews. And the Samaritans were worse than Gentiles. They were a mixed race both Jewish and Gentile ancestors. 
You see, when Assyria conquered Samaria seven centuries ago, the Assyrians bred foreigners with the surviving Israelis. The Jews in Jerusalem viewed the Samaritans as mongrels, a completely different sect of people. In fact, the Samaritans developed their own rival religion. They had their own priesthood and even had their own temple up on the mountain right just west of the the city that Jesus is heading for, Mount Gerizim. And for years, for centuries, this mixed race of Samaritans had lived right geographically right in the middle of the true and pure Jewish nation, a living reminder of their past failures. In Jesus' day, the Jews, because of their hatred for the Samaritans, normally took the eastern route in order to avoid them. But Jesus chose this route through Samaria, and John reminds us in verse 4, but Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Why? Well, we'll see why in just a few moments as the story continues. And here we come to point number two on my outline, if you want to look at it. Jesus knew his Father in heaven wanted him and his crew to pass through Samaria. There's a divine appointment in the making. Many of you know the story, but Let me tell it to you this morning anyway. Verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. In the distant past, this plot of ground was important Jewish territory. It belonged to Jacob himself. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, the father of the Jews. Jacob, the father of 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jacob is one of Israel's ancient patriarchs. And John tells us in verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. This well should have been a, a Jewish national historic site. Jacob had purchased this plot of ground in the early years of Israel's history as he was returning from 20 years of servitude to Laban. You know that story? He spent 20 years working for the hand of beautiful Rachel. This was sacred ground to the Jewish nation, but desecrated through the years by people who had intermarried with the Canaanites and other ethnic and religious groups. This plot of land with the well on it even added to the hostilities between them. Well, Jesus needed to take this shortcut. He needed to keep the appointment that's about to unfold. He's incarnate God, or God in the flesh. He knows the future. Whether it's the next few minutes he'll spend with this woman or eternity future, he knows the future, but he's also truly human. We'll see this in the last part of verse 6. Look at that. Jesus, therefore, 
being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Well, Jesus, being truly human, experienced thirst and weariness and pain and hunger. He's human. But he also possesses the attributes of deity, including omniscience and omnipotence. And we're going to see that in this story of compassion and forgiveness. Now, according to the Roman time reckoning, the sixth hour would have been 6 p.m. Well, here in Willows, that would be the hottest part of the day. If we're referring to Jewish thinking, the sixth hour would would be 12 noon. Either way, it's a hot and dusty time of day to be traveling or wearily walking to this well for water. Verse 7. The woman of Samaria came to draw water. Well, there's your first hint of trouble right there. This woman has waited until an extremely hot time of the day, walking approximately a full mile each way to get water for her family. Village woman would come for water in the cool early morning, never in the heat of the afternoon. As we eavesdrop on this conversation, we'll discover why she's waited until the well was usually isolated to carry her daily portion of water. Jesus is thirsty. So John tells us that Jesus said to her in the last part of verse 7, Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Well, that's important too. Jesus needs to be alone with this woman to allow this conversation to even take place. It needed to be one-on-one. No distractions or interruptions, no preconceived attitudes or prejudices. Jesus is about to break down all of the social rules of etiquette and decorum. And this lady, she takes a, does a double take when Jesus looks at her and says, Give me a drink. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, let me interpret here for you. Excuse me, sir, but strangers don't just start up talking with unaccompanied women. And on top of all that, no self-respecting Jew gives us Samaritans even the time of day. I, I think she might be a little frightened. She's alone out here with this stranger, and even stranger, he's a Jewish His response takes the conversation in a totally unexpected direction. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He says, If you knew the gift of God, Now, you and I know exactly what Jesus is doing here. But he's doing it so gradual, taking such baby steps, that she 
unwittingly continues the conversation. In verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? The woman knows that Jesus has made a remarkable claim about living water, but she doesn't realize yet just how totally extraordinary this claim is. She's beginning to wonder, is this living water found in the bottom of the well? Remember, she said, where do you get this living water? Well, Jesus has her thinking outside the box. She's asking about his living water, knowing it's special, but not knowing how or why. So she asks in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? You'll notice here she didn't even wait for an answer from Jesus about where you got the living water. The claim that Jesus just made to her is beginning to sink in. Are you greater than our own patriarch? Greater than Abraham's grandson, Jacob? I don't know if she's mocking Jesus here or beginning to truly question the eternal truth that Jesus is touching on, nudging her toward. Jesus answered and said to her in verse 13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing into eternal life. Jesus is offering this woman something that she really wants. Never thirst again? She's tired of trudging this long mile out here to the well in the heat of the afternoon. This promise also touches on a deep sense of loss and loneliness in this woman. She's tried it all. Nothing has brought her the lasting satisfaction that all of her marriages or her physical possessions have promised. And this is my third point to think about on our, on our list. It doesn't matter where we go or what we do or how much we get. It doesn't fill the hole inside, not for long. And Jesus predicted it. You will <clears throat> thirst again. Which quickly brings me to point four. Physical stuff <clears throat> can never satisfy a spiritual need. This woman opens up <clears throat> to Jesus in the next verse. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. There's a thirst that goes deeper than this well, and Jesus has touched on it. Remember when you recognized that thirst yourself? And you responded to the Savior? The Holy Spirit has stirred this deeper thirst in our heart. 
He's moving her to begin breaking out of the bonds that have held her captive to these old demands and cravings. In verse 14, Jesus said, there's another name for living water. This is my fifth point. Living water is everlasting life. It's not just long life. It's full and deep and abundant life. It speaks of quality of life, not just quantity. And it's available to us today in Jesus' name. Give me this water, she says. But there's a requirement that has to be met. It's, it's called repentance. So Jesus explains what repentance means for her and her lifestyle. He hits her with this zinger, I call it. Jesus said to her, well, go, call your husband and come back here. <clears throat> the woman answered and said, I have no husband. I wonder if that sharp reply was her thinking she had exposed Jesus as a pretender thinking, aha, I got him. He doesn't even know I'm not married right now. So Jesus said to her, You have well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Her demonstration of repentance lies right at the surface. In her case, <coughs> it's connected <coughs> to her sexual promiscuity, her shameless search for love. Jesus wants to quench this woman's thirst, but first he needs to deal with her sin. There's no conversion without conviction. Now this is interesting to think about. In chapter 3, Jesus addresses self-righteousness with Nicodemus. Here in chapter 4, he deals with unrighteousness. But his remedy is the same. Both people need a new birth. They need a drink of living water. The woman said to him in verse 19, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. You see, the spiritual quality of this conversation dawns on her. But Jesus has put his finger on her sin, and she starts to squirm. It's time to change the topic. So she says in verse 20, um, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Things are about to change. Jesus says, The hour is coming. With the hour coming of the Messiah, changes occur. You see, Jesus is now God's temple on earth. And he's made the temples on both mountains irrelevant. 
From this moment on, God no longer dwells in houses made of stone or wood. So Jesus continues, You worship what you do not know, but we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Change is coming, but truth still matters. Salvation is of the Jews, and it's Jesus who bears the bloodline of the true Messiah. Jesus continues in verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Jesus moves the timeline up another notch. The, t- the hour is coming, but he says, now is. Jesus is offering her the kingdom right now, right then. He says, God seeks believing hearts to become his temple. God is spirit, Jesus says. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. My eighth point that I want you to think about is Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman to stop limiting God to a mountaintop or a temple or a church building for that matter. God is no longer found in brick and mortar, but in spirit and truth. The true God is understood biblically and experienced spiritually. This woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The religion of the, Samarit- the, religion of the Samaritans was a corrupt form of the worship going on in the temple in Jerusalem. But one thing they did have in common is they believed in that, that a Messiah would come one day. Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Jesus makes a direct claim to deity. He is the Messiah. Did she then, right then, fall on her knees and begin to worship Jesus? Well, we don't know for sure because the disciples come rambling up, barging into the conversation, asking Jesus, Hey, Master, what's going on? Verse 27 says, And at this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. They knew that Jesus was in this deep conversation with this Samaritan woman. The whole time they'd been approaching the well, they could see Jesus and this woman in this deep conversation. So John tells us here in the last part of verse 27, Yet no one said, looking at her, What do you seek? Or looking at him, Why are you talking to her? They just ignored the situation. They were too shocked and upset over the social and cultural issues 
to pay attention to God's agenda. They had just been shopping on the other side of the tracks, and they were still focusing on racial issues. In verse 28, we read that the woman then left her water pot. I think she hurried out of there. She went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Now isn't this fascinating? Exposure to the townspeople was the very thing she tried to avoid by going to the well in the heat of the day, and now she seeks them out. Someone once said this, she went from being an outcast to broadcast. Jesus knew her sins, but he didn't condemn her. She's trusting his mercies. It seems that a single sip of living water gave her an unexpected boldness. Once she felt God's forgiveness, she's oblivious to her past. She's caught up in the love of Jesus, and all that matters right now is sharing Him. Verse 31 says, In the meantime, or back at the ranch, His disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So in the meantime, or before the crowd returns with the woman, Jesus has a few words to say to his disciples. A teaching moment about compassion for the lost. Mankind needs a Savior, and Jesus is going to remind them of what his mission on earth is all about. So he says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? You know, I can just see them kind of looking around at each other, shaking their heads, saying, saying, Not me, you? Well, they know they've all been together. Did someone, you know, did a taco truck come out of the city? What's going on here? Well, John wants to remind us again that these disciples were in a living classroom. In their slow, plodding way, they were just beginners and greenhorns. They were trainees in this new covenant from God. They don't always get it. And this is one of those times. They thought that taking this shortcut through Samaria was Unusual, all right, but certainly not for the purpose of sharing the good news. Certainly not for the purpose of doing God's work. Not with these Samaritans. So Jesus takes a moment to teach here in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you remember it was actually Jesus' words that we quote in John 3.16? Until I thought of it, studying for this, I didn't realize, I was thinking, well, John told us. That's John's verse. But these are Jesus' words. For God so loved the world that he gave me to the world. 
He needed to go through Samaria. Gave proof that Jesus came as Savior, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. And that includes these Samaritans. In verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they're already white for harvest. Jesus has come to sit at this well because this field is white for harvest. The grain may be four months away, but it's harvest time here in Samaria. Well, I guess it's true. Most crops change color when it's harvest time. I've seen the rice field change colors. Well, let me tell you a short family story about the colors of harvest. We moved from the coast of Oregon to Reedley and Dinuba, uh, that area, when I entered into high school. You've all heard of Dinuba, right? The home of Tornado Tally. The move was disastrous for our family. And my dad found himself temporarily out of work just as the oranges were coming into ready for harvest. Before they could get the sawmilling going again, my dad, my dad took any job he could get to pay the bills. He picked oranges for one day. Well, actually, they only let him pick oranges just part of one morning. Then they took his ladder away. The oranges, to coin a phrase in this story, were orange to harvest, ripening and ready to pick. But Dad was so colorblind that he couldn't tell orange from green. And he filled his bags to overflowing with any old orange he could get his hands on. (laughs) He was like these disciples. They couldn't tell that it was harvest time for the crop here in Samaria. Jesus says in verse 36, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Well, sometimes we sow the seeds of truth and plant thoughts in fertile minds. Other time we reap decisions that are there And we're there when folks commit to Jesus. However we participate, we can rejoice. Jesus is saying, we came here today to reap a spiritual harvest of Samaritan souls, those who have been sowing, scattering the seed, the seed of salvation. They will rejoice with us when payday comes. So he goes on in verse 37. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Well, who is Jesus speaking of? Who labored in these fields in times past? We know from verses 20 and 21 that the Samaritan people worshipped God on their own mountain, Their worship was corrupted, mixed with pagan beliefs and practices, but it had originated with the true prophets of the Old Testament. We know for sure that they were expecting the Messiah. 
And many Bible scholars also believe that John the Baptist's ministry reached the ears of the Samaritan people too. In verse 39, John brings us back to the woman. She's been telling her story to the villagers. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Remember earlier when I asked the question, did she right then fall to her knees and begin to worship Jesus? The answer must be yes. This woman's direct testimony had an enormous effect on the people. What was it that affected them so? Was it her language changed or her countenance or attitude or her honesty? Well, one thought is, I have a friend who's a non-believer. I pray for him. But he can't even talk about lunch with dropping a few swear bombs. I can see how this woman, after coming face to face with the Savior, after opening her, her, opening her heart to the mercy and grace of God, that these same people who have known her for years, seen her immoral lifestyle, and heard her rant and rave about everyone else, And this brings me to my last point on my list. Her testimony alone was enough to melt and challenge the hearts of many of her neighbors. A recent survey revealed that 85% of Christians are converted by the influence of a close friend or a family member. Who are the people in your life that are watching and listening to you. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own words. Because of this woman, these people invited Jesus into their city and into their hearts. Well, there are many people in your life that can see Jesus in the new you that was born at the feet of the Savior just because of the changes God is making in your life day by day. My younger brother, I'll bring him up again. He surprised me once when he said to me, Oh, I know exactly when you were saved. I said to him, How could you? You were only 11 years old at that time. And Lee answered, (laughs) You and Wayne started treating me different. You were nice to me. Tyler, come on up. Verse 42. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What a great story of redemption. This woman had three strikes against her at least. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman, and she was living a sinful life. Well, no matter who you are or what you've done, The Savior is seeking you to worship Him. We all fit in 
two different categories according to this story. Those of you who need to believe in the Savior and those of us who need to share the Savior more with others. Let's take a few moments to worship before we close the meeting.